Hello and welcome to our brand new podcast, The Climate Clinic, brought to you by the Global Consortium on Climate and Health Education. My name is Adesh Sundaresan, and I'll be your host for this series, Be the Expert. Each week, I'll be joined by distinguished guests to bring you the latest headlines within climate and health research from the leading evidence-based journals around the world. Tune in to learn about the health implications of climate change, how this is affecting us today, and what needs to be done. By the end of it, you'll know all you need to know in order to be the expert. Welcome back for another episode of Be the Expert with myself, Adesh Sundarayson, and Dr. Mark Futenek. And it's Climate Month for the British Medical Journal, who have published some real cracking articles on the health impacts of climate change, and just as importantly, what health services can do to reduce their carbon footprints, ASAP. So this week, we selected a paper that looked at how we can reduce the health impacts from ambient air pollution. And for listeners that are not familiar with the term, ambient air pollution refers to hazardous substances that are in the outdoor air that are harmful to our health when inhaled. And most of this comes from the burning of fossil fuels, such as gas, coal, oil, whether it's for energy or for transportation. But globally, another major contributor is burning other fuels for cooking or heating in the home, such as wood or dung cakes. And now, more recently, wildfires are becoming uh, an increasing source of air pollution that's particularly toxic. Absolutely, Mark. Air pollution is a huge issue. We all know that. We've seen the headlines over the last few years, smogs around the world, whether it's Delhi, Beijing, other regions of the world, the impacts from wildfire as well. And the study we picked, as you've said, from the British Medical Journal today is titled Reducing the Health Impacts of Ambient Air Pollution. And the authors have reminded us, a very stark reminder, that air pollution is, wait for it, the fifth highest risk factor for death. That air pollution is the fifth highest risk factor for death after high blood pressure, smoking, raised fasting glucose, which is or diabetes, and raised cholesterol. And there's a good volume of high quality evidence out there on how our health is being affected by air pollution. But there's not so much thus far on how we can protect our health from air pollution. And much like the review that we spoke about on heat and health a few weeks ago, the authors provided recommendations on how we can safeguard our health from this threat. Nitesh, I just want to highlight why this is so important. So there's a number of studies that have tried to estimate the global impact from air pollution, and most of them land somewhere between 7 and 9 million deaths every year. And you'll often hear this number quoted because the most recent large study calculated 8.7 million annual deaths due to the combination of indoor and outdoor air pollution. So this is a really critical topic. In this article, they started off by describing the main constituents of ambient air pollution, where they come from, and how each of them affects our health. So there's particulate matter, which comes mostly from burning fuels and wildfires, nitrogen oxides from vehicle emissions, and also ground level ozone and sulfur dioxide. And it's worth noting that many of the associated health impacts from these are similar. For instance, all of them contribute to increased incidence of COPD or chronic lung disease, such as asthma. Mark, I just want to jump in and make sure all of our listeners are uh, on board with what particulate matter is. So it's basically a term to describe a mixture of solid and liquid droplets and particles that we found find in the air. So these can be dust, dirt, soot, smoke, and they range in size. So we can, we can see some of them with the naked eye, and others are so small we need like an electron microscope to see them. And they have different 
deleterious effects on our health. So PM 2.5, which is the smallest that we commonly measure, which means it's 2.5 microns, is particulate matter that's small enough to pass through the alveoli of the lung and directly into the capillaries or the bloodstream. And this leads to systemic effects, not just respiratory effects, including known deleterious effects such as negative cardiovascular outcomes, including stroke, ischemic heart disease, heart attacks, heart failure, and arrhythmias or abnormal rhythms. Most of the studies on air pollution include our focus on PM 2.5 due to its really significant impact on human health. That's an interesting point, Mark. Uh, the authors in, in the review that we've picked, they cited a particular study that's fairly well known called the ESCAPE study. Um, and this really looked at the long-term exposure to airborne pollutants on incidences of acute coronary events. And, and, and this is across 11 cohorts um, in Finland, Sweden, Denmark, Germany and Italy over a 10-year period between 1997 and 2007. And they found that a 5 microgram per cubic meter increase in the estimated average particulate matter 2.5 micron or PM 2.5 was linked with a 13% increase of coronary events and a 10 microgram per cubic meter increase um, in estimated average PM 10 was associated with a 12% increased risk of coronary events. So we've, we've been seeing this, this association and trend for a long time now, particularly with particulate matters of, of various sizes. In the review that we've picked out today, I like how the authors have presented the data. So here we go again, Mark, with describing the visuals um, and, and the graphics and the tables, which our listeners can't see. But I do urge you to check them out in the show notes, which will be linked. And the authors expanded on, on supporting studies and evidence within these. And so they really broke down how air pollution affects the human body based on organ system or physiology. So they reviewed literature for respiratory, cardiovascular, fetal and maternal health, mental health, cognitive health, and topically also um, COVID-19 response as well. I think it's important at this point to recap some of the known effects of air pollution on our health. So air pollution increases the incidence of childhood asthma. Incidence, so the onset of childhood asthma, increases cardiovascular events, both chronically like heart failure and acutely, such as strokes and heart attacks. Increases preterm births. Increases mental health problems, including severe psychiatric illness. And there's even evidence that air pollution acutely impairs cognitive performance meaning we don't perform as well at work or at school when the AQI is high. So there's a great graphic in the article dubbed the Pyramid of the Effects of Air Pollution, which was adapted from the US EPA and looks similar to the familiar food pyramid. And so at the top, we have death, which is obviously the most severe impact from air pollution, um, but impacts the fewest people. It's often the focus of our attention and studies. But as we travel down the pyramid, we get to less severe effects hospital admissions, or maybe ER visits, or other illness exacerbations until we're looking at the subclinical effects that are impacting the majority of the population. So most of us are experiencing lung function reduction, systemic inflammation, and chronic organ damage um, from the air pollution that we're exposed to. And this also results in an impact on the economy through lost workdays and productivity in addition to the healthcare costs. So what you've really just said there, Mark, is that there's a real emphasis and focus on the headlines, which is how many people have died as a result from air, a result of air pollution exposure. 
But when we get down to the subclinical effects, we're seeing that, hey, this is this is chugging along day to day basis, you know, systemic inflammatory processes in pretty much all of us probably who are being exposed to, you know, chronically being exposed to air pollution that impacts our, our productivity, impacts the economy, impacts our health over a long period of time. That's that's pretty scary. Yeah, and the authors make an interesting point that right now we don't have a clear objective way to attribute those symptoms or those effects to air pollution specifically as the causative factor. For instance, if a patient has a stroke, you know, there's so many factors that contribute to that. We don't have a perfect method right now of saying, oh, that was due to their exposure to air pollution. Um, however, in the future, we might be able to use some biomarkers to monitor pollutant exposure or, you know, have pathology that that is specific to diagnose to damage uh, from air pollution that would be diagnostic. Right now, the best way to establish the link between air pollution and the symptoms that we're seeing is to take a thorough environmental history, which is focused on potential exposures to air pollution, let's say at home or at work or at school or other areas where people spend a lot of time. And I really think it's this inability to clearly define or establish the connection in specific patients that has led to a lack of awareness in the medical field of the danger of air pollution on a day-to-day basis. So it's rarely listed as a causative or contributor to death. In fact, it was international news when doctors in the UK included air pollution on the death certificate of a young girl who died of asthma. Those are really interesting points, Mark. We're aware of you know the links and the, and the the triggers between exposure to air pollution and organ system damage throughout the body but we're not actually able to lock down for in an in, on an individual level with our patients and say hey your stroke or your heart attack or your asthma exacerbation was directly because of this exposure to an air pollutant and that's something that will be um uh, as, as the authors have gone on to say, could be an interesting point in terms of diagnostic biomarkers, as you mentioned, in the future. The next area the authors came to in their review was looking at how we can reduce our risk of exposure to air pollution. So, Mark, without stating the obvious, the mainstay of this really revolves around refraining from going outdoors for strenuous exercise during periods where air pollution levels are much higher, avoiding busy roads and traffic during peak hours when air quality is poor, and and staying inside with high-efficiency particular air filtration systems, or HEPAs as they're known. So the authors suggested a few recommendations for individuals to limit their exposure to air pollution, and these included the first is sort of an education piece, so it's ensuring patients are aware of their underlying vulnerabilities. So these could be comorbidities, supposing they've got, you know, ischemic heart disease or respiratory ailments, age, pregnancy status. Um, and in particular, they, they make note to mention those with pulmonary and cardiovascular risk factors um, should be aware of their status uh, as vulnerable individuals and incorporating education on air pollution into their yearly health checks, which is back to a point which we've covered in in several podcasts, we heard it in our Code Red podcast when Dr. Hina Shan came on and said, you know, there's a great opportunity. It's very rare for many for certain patients to present, but when they present, to utilize that opportunity to, to incorporate that education of, you know, regard with regards to a patient's vulnerabilities. Dash, I think this one is really important and is not happening currently. 
How many people with hypertension or diabetes consider air pollution a health risk for them? But it clearly is. And how about pregnant women whose unborn babies may face the greatest risk from air pollution? I think there is a real lack of awareness that needs to be addressed. And I think it starts in the clinical exam room. Couldn't agree more, Mark. I think it's a really important point that needs to be addressed. And I guess it starts with with education, if you know that as as the next generation of prof- healthcare professionals come through, it's that knowledge that hey, when I take a history and do a medications review, use that you know that small opportunity or that window I get, and I get it's difficult because you're left with you know in the UK many of our primary care consultations are down to seven eight minutes. You know it's hardly any time you get to even to to even explore the patient's presenting complaint, but we have to try and maximize on the minimal opportunities we get with, 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 with our patients to educate and advise with regards to vulnerability. So next, the authors go on to talk about uh, using air quality alerts to advise, you know, avoiding certain behaviors during periods of poor air quality for particularly vulnerable patients. So we've talked previously about apps that tell you about air quality index uh, and indices, depending on a geographic location and threshold. And really for vulnerable patients to know, hey, I should not be running or jogging or walking my dog outside on a day like this. They also talk about arranging close follow-ups and stabilizations for those with chronic diseases during periods of poor air quality. They suggest co-creating an action plan for those with respiratory conditions um, and for these individuals to always carry rescue inhalers. So they do note that there's actually not a lot of reliable evidence to support prophylactic or preventative usage of inhalers, you know, prior to being exposed to increased levels of air pollution. But they do suggest using, you know, always having a rescue inhaler for you in case there is a trigger from the air pollution um, or an exacerbation. And finally, they touch on considering the temporary use of tightly fitted respirators. So these include your N95 face masks, etc. that can reduce our exposure to particular matter when worn in high exposure situations as well. Um, You know, there is a a counter argument to this in that there's a possibility of creating a false sense of security if you if you rely on masks, which actually might end up resulting in an increased level level of exposure. And the fact that the respirator itself or the mask may worsen your symptoms of shortness of breath in patients who have chronic respiratory diseases. So, you know, there's there's, there's pros and cons to be weighed up with these, Mark. Yeah, I think as long as you're monitoring how you're responding to the mask wearing, um, there's no doubt that an N95 will decrease your particulate matter exposure. And so, again, if you're an asthmatic or you're other high-risk patient, I think it does make a sense Let's say you're on these really horrible high, you know, AQIs over 400, like we're seeing around wildfires. I think it does make sense to protect yourself with masking as well as the other things that they talked about. They also mentioned avoidance of co-exposures. So for instance, that air day is not the best time to have a barbecue or to start up the wood burning fireplace. So maybe it's obvious, but not everyone is aware or thinking of these things about how these cumulative exposures increase the danger. The article then explores how we as health professionals, both as individuals and by push air organizations, can advocate to reduce the harms of ambient air pollution. And some of these recommendations were encouraging collective social action through limiting the sources. So active transport like biking and walking, carpooling, cleaner fuel use, 
And we also have a responsibility as healthcare professionals to advocate for air pollution to be incorporated into national and global prevention guidelines from, let's say, national organizations like cardiology and pulmonary organizations, as well as calling for stricter local and national enforcement of air quality standards. The co-benefits of investing in this transformation should be appreciated more widely. By transitioning away from fossil fuels, we will save huge amounts of money in healthcare right away, allowing us to continue to invest in renewable energy. We can create a positive feedback loop that accelerates the change we need and improves our health immediately and supports our transition to green energy. Those are really important points, Mark, but I will draw back to something I just heard you mention in that you talked about, you know, calling for stricter guidelines around what constitutes an air quality standard. But of course, there's still heavy debate as to what is a safe exposure level to air pollution. You know, we're still at that point and WHO posits that over 90% of human beings live in a place where ambient air pollution is at the very least harmful to their health. Adesh, that's astounding. According to the WHO, so I'm going to repeat it, over 90% of all people in the world are living with harmful levels of air pollution right now. And then they added that if we cut air pollution to the safety limits that they've proposed, 80% of the related deaths would be avoided. And recall from what we talked about earlier that those numbers are in the 8 million people per year range. So saving 80% of those deaths would save a lot of lives. Absolutely. You have, a, I mean, having gone through medical training, you know that when you practice or, you know, your consultations or a respiratory consultation, you screen for behaviors such as smoking. And you say, hey, when you're thinking of considering risks of lung cancer, you say, have you smoked before? And people say, well, no, I haven't. Well, actually now you may not need to smoke, <laughs> you know, to have to be at a, a far increased risk of, say, lung adenocarcinoma, because your risk of air pollution exposure is is super high, regardless of where you are around the world. In this, in this study, the authors also include a table, and it basically compares the WHO 2021 global standards um, to those from the WHO in 2005. So it really looks at what WHO's position is on air quality standards over you know, a 16-year period. And it also compares it to a couple of geographic regions around the world, country country, so China, India, the US and the EU. And first of all, I'll say that you can clearly see that WHO themselves have tightened up their global standards significantly on what constitutes harmful air pollution exposure since 2005. Uh, I'll give you a few examples. Their thresholds for harmful PM 2.5 have dropped from an annual average of 25 micrograms per cubic meter per year to just five. So it's gone down, it's like gone down to a fifth of what it had been before. And it's the same story, it's very similar for ozone and nitrogen dioxide too, and what really they say constitutes harmful exposure and harmful levels. Um, but when we compare the air quality targets that the WHO have set now in the last year to what is actually happening on the ground in these countries, it's really shocking. Um, at the time of reporting um, this, you know, in, in June this year, India's annual PM 2.5 average was 40. And if I take you back to the WHO standard, it's five. So 40 versus five. I mean, that's a huge difference. China's is 75. And even the EU's is 25 and the US is 12. So 
you know, the US, we, out of those sample size of, of four regions that we've talked about, is closest to the target of five, but they're still all way off. You know, even the US is more than double what constitutes safe exposure for PM2.5. China's ozone is also noticeably high. Um, and and really, the WHO have tried to help countries around the world by providing interim targets for countries to aim for a step-by-step decrease in their harmful levels of air pollutants. But for many of these countries, they're still a long, long way off, as we can see. I just want to stress that the reason these levels are coming down is because we have more scientific evidence that um, these lower levels of air pollution are still very harmful to our health. So, so both in the U.S. and around the world, these levels of safety keep coming down and we need to try to meet them by transitioning off of fossil fuels. Finally, they also touched on the inequities in exposure and health outcomes. So racial, socioeconomic, and geographic disparities in exposure are all very well documented, even within a single city or neighborhood. And this is largely driven by economic factors or systemic or historic racism. For example, consistent PM2.5 exposure inequity from all major emission categories has been shown in people of ethnic minority across most states, urban and rural areas, in various income levels in the U.S., and the risk of dying early from exposure particulate matter pollution is shown to be higher in U.S. communities with larger Black populations, lower home values, and lower median income. Yeah, um, I'd like to point out, Mark, that there's a, a study, a recent study analyzing air pollution exposure in India that also showed higher PM2.5 concentrations in districts with higher percentages of schedule casts, young children, households without indoor toilets as well. So, so this was this is something that's being seen all around the world. I also thought that the patient perspectives that they included in this review were very powerful and were a clear reminder of the, the spectrum of harm. So, you know, you, you can go from chronic morbidity and suffering to the ultimate, you know, worst outcome, which is death as a direct result of air pollution. At the end of the article, there's a brief message from the mother of the young girl whose official death certificate recorded asthma as a direct result of air pollution it was a powerful call to action. Now is the time to leverage what we know to improve the health of our communities. Absolutely, Mark. This was a really, really insightful review article with some great suggestions there. Uh, For our listeners, reminding you, this was titled Reducing the Health Impacts of Ambient Air Pollution and was published this month in the British Medical Journal as part of its Climate Issues Special. You can find more information in our show notes as well and the link to the original article too. Thank you very much for listening. We look forward to welcoming you back for the next episode of Media Experts soon.